Welcome to the final draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is part two of my conversation with Eileen Chong. If you haven't caught part one, it will be there in your podcast feed. I suggest you go back, start there. There's some really interesting foundational ideas about poetry and Eileen's uh, beginnings in poetry that are going to inform what Eileen and I talk about today. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is unceded land, stolen land. Treaty was never reached in Australia. Eileen Chong is an Australian poet of Chinese descent. She's the author of eight collections of poetry, and her work has been listed for so many incredible prizes, including the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and the PM's Literary Awards. Her first collection, Burning Rice, is now taught as part of the New South Wales HSC syllabus, being shared by the next generation of young poets and young readers. Now, today we will be talking about her new collection, A Thousand Crimson Blooms. And in this part two, we're going to get deeper into the ideas that Eileen is exploring in A Thousand Crimson Blooms, and as an absolutely special, amazing treat. Eileen shares one of the poems with us on the podcast today. Definitely worth hanging around. Join me as we discover Eileen Jong's A Thousand Crimson Blooms. To even be able to say I'm a writer or I'm a poet feels transgressive, but also extremely powerful. It strikes me as you talk about that journey and I reflect back to sort of where we, we began that question around the idea of, of the privilege of being able to say you're apolitical um, or a anything, being able to ignore something and the privilege of, of doing that involves a certain amount of, of apathy. And I mean, I can reflect on your collection, I can reflect on all the poetry that I've read and the way it invites engagement that shakes out, shakes out apathy. And I, I just think that's that's a wonderful process. I just wanted to reflect on that because I also really want to get to this collection, um, which we've, we've only touched on so far. As I read, I mean, there's an enormous amount. I, I confess to you off air that when, when, I, when I go into these conversations, if there are a hundred poems in a collection, then there are potentially a hundred different interviews we could do. So I, I will maybe draw out one or two, but I felt across the collection this intense grappling with violence. Um, I saw it particularly in the section Griefs, and this was violence committed through acts, but also through omissions. Um, and I also felt in the poems the ways that we can fail, often um, reflecting as as men, to see others, to value them as we may value ourselves. Um, so many, so many things that I pulled out. Um, I might, I might just sort of look at um, the poem after. You, you say at one point, or you, the, I think the poem ends with, "We've lit the fire." Come out of the cave. Listen, believe us, we survived. We have nothing left to lose. And there are words there that echo a sort of broader public sentiment that I've heard, this idea of believe us. Believe people 
when they tell you that something is happening, when that something is wrong. Um, can you talk maybe just a little bit about the ways you've engaged with violence and acts of violence in the collection? Um, at the risk of kind of derailing your question, I, I want to very quickly speak about the notion that you were talking about um, around political apathy. Mm. I want to frame, I want to reframe that slightly and in terms of the, the opposite of political apathy for me isn't political activism, but it is about political responsibility. What are your responsibilities as a person, as a member of the community, as a writer? And I, I take that responsibility very seriously. You know, I, I, I'm a teacher of poetry and I try to support other people. And this then leads into the notions of silence. Now, I want to, I'm very surprised and, you know, with the poetry publishing process, many of these poems were written years and years before. You know, we're talking about this in 2021, but many of these poems were written in 2016, 2017, maybe. And it just takes a long time for the poems to come out in, in a book. And so when I was writing this poem, I was thinking very much, um, and this is not a new problem, as we know, you know, the whole Me Too movement, um, the, the apathy um, that we see from politicians, from media figures. And I have to say that I lie in this poem because we survived. We have nothing left to lose. As we have seen, there is so much still to lose. There is so much that survivors still lose every single day, even as they've plucked up the courage to talk about violence enacted upon them. Their families suffer, there's collateral damage, and yet they speak up, yet we speak up. Um, and so I suppose what I was trying to do within this poem was to contrast the notion of, of everyday peace and growth and struggle and the cycles of nature and also the cycles of violence um, and that some people might say, you know, it's always happened and this is what will happen. But I'm saying that we need to, we need to break this cycle somehow, you know, and a man writes a woman in ecstasy or terror. This is a, the 19th century notion of, you know, the, 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 the hysterical woman. And that just got me really, really angry to say we're in 2021 and people still don't care if a woman is in ecstasy or terror. And we've seen this with the rape apologists. We've seen this with, with people attacking survivors who speak up to say, you know, I wouldn't get drunk. And it's just at once gobsmacking, but also predictable and boring and wrong. There's a really powerful image. So I was reflecting on what you were just saying there, and there's a really powerful image earlier in the in the poem where you say, every place we look, a man traverses a country littered with bodies. And at first pass, that, that sounds like, a, I guess, an almost militaristic type image. We imagine scenes of war. But as you described, there is still so much to lose. And, and very, very literally, we could transpose that idea of a country littered with bodies with, with being sort of that, that collateral fallout from people being brave enough to come forward, the impact that flows on if they're not believed or if they're targeted, if, um, if they're, I'm trying to think of the exact phrase that's, that's used. If, um, 
if, if certain people uh, inform against their partners and otherwise to discredit them, that idea of the bravery being met with not just apathy, as we were talking before, but but also a, a real movement to challenge the veracity of what's being said, literally to not believe people. Well, I think I think what we're trying to get at here is that systems fail us and systems mm. have failed us, but we need to interrogate who have made these systems, who have put these systems in place, mm. who continues to enact the violence um, um, created by these systems. And, you know, the beautiful thing about a poem is it can be read in many situations. So this poem is about you know, colonization as much as it is about um, the interference of man in nature as much as it is about violence against women. So, you know, extrapolate where you will, and but pay attention. I think that's what my poem is, is asking. I saw also uh, an attempt to deal with, a, I guess, a different type of violence, um, but also... Uh, a, a dealing with loss in uh, what I, I I read a narrative arc through the Hyman Diaries, and it seemed to me you were you were talking about ideas of conception and childbirth, but also losing a child, and that unspeakable sadness. And I found in in several poems there seemed to be a dialogue going between a woman who had experienced something and a man or or others outside her own personal experience. Um, and one line I, I just jotted down because it particularly it particularly just sort of got me, when each of them failed to draw breath, how parts of me died too. And this this was spoken, if I remember correctly, in the context of the the novel which uh, sorry of the the poem, which is woman crying. It's a, it's not spoken to the individual, the partner, it's actually spoken to a friend. They're having a conversation where the woman is being almost berated about the way this situation goes. And the poem really sort of brought to life to me the ways that we're we're never privy to an individual's close experience of anything, how how it it goes through their body. But also in, in many ways, we, we fail to even try and meet that experience my, my my visceral moving away uh, from that poem was someone who just wasn't even trying to get it, talking to someone who was still dealing with something so incredibly deep. Um, I think that last line is also a little bit based in science because, um, you know, when a woman conceives, um, cells from the unborn um, fetus travel to the, the mother's brain. So every every mother out there has cells from her children in her brain, you know. And I, I have wondered, you know, in those instances where I did conceive, if those cells, what happened to those cells? You know, they were probably, um, I lost my pregnancies at a very early stage, so it probably never never went anywhere. They didn't get to that stage to embed themselves in, in, in my physical body, but they certainly have embedded themselves um, in my experience. So I suppose what, you're, what you might be saying is that my poems are an invitation to empathy because I try to speak what is often 
left unsaid. And then I leave space for the reader to come and meet me in the middle. Mm. And this is what I, I, I often think about um, the beauty of poetry, is that meaning is created um, simultaneously through the process of reading and the responses in uh, the reader's mind. It's much like the, the documentary of Baraka, where there are no words, you know, there are images and there are sounds. And it's almost like every time I watch Baraka, I have a different experience. And it's because the narrative in my own mind kind of takes over. And it's, it's, it's um, a, a form of association, isn't it? And so I hope that reading my poems or the act of, of reading poetry in general increases um, empathy in readers simply because of the extension and the expectation of participation. It, uh, poetry is an act of generosity, I feel, um, and also bravery because we, you know, sometimes and people like to ask me, Eileen, how do you just get the endings of your poems just right? And people often describe the endings of my poems as a gut punch, um, which I don't always enjoy because it seems very violent. But I think what's happening is that I take, I try to take you to the brink of that emotional barrier in your mind and in your heart. And then I cross that barrier. And I might do that gently or not. Um, but the, the, you need to understand that what it costs me as the poet to step across that barrier as well. You know, to say, I'm going to take this to the very end. And that's what I'm saying in um, my final poem, my final poem in A Thousand Crimson Blooms as well, you know, um, Cycle, which is a crown of sonnets. And I'm saying we must go to the end of the road. And this is a journey that um, all of us will travel. And, and you know, there's a, a lot of um, people talk often about poets thinking about death all the time. And it, it, I think it's true because I think poets, I might argue that poets more than any other writer, um, we walk with death. And, you know, you, you know where it ends. You know where it ends, Andrew. I know where it ends. We are, we are all going to the same place. And we don't know when. We don't know how. And we can only hope that between then and now that we can keep doing something with our lives, whatever it is, something meaningful, something powerful for, for you at least. Thank you for the invitation to empathy, as, as you mentioned there, because it is so very important. I mean, I, I it's what I enjoy about, about reading poetry. It's what I've enjoyed about A Thousand Crimson Blooms. I'm very reticent to ask any more questions because I think what we were just discussing there would be a perfect point to end. But you did also trigger another thought that I, I had jotted some notes around there about the imagery and the the engagement with science. And I had also noticed a theme of, of numbers occurring throughout um, poems in the collection. Uh, I particularly draw note to the numbers game and, and my mother talks in numbers and it felt to me there was, you were juxtaposing, I guess, a sense of mathematical certainties, the ordering the and patterning that numbers gives us with a more mysterious or a sense of the mysteries that living a life might have or, or even conceiving a life. And we've just, con we've just talked there about 
the science, the certainties that science might be able to give us in those processes, but also all of the variables, all of the mysteries, the things that we, we can't understand. Um, we also exist in a capitalist society. Um, and at the end of the day, we need to survive. We need to earn money. And my mother was uh, a bookkeeper for much of her life. And she was a thwarted artist. She wanted to be a painter. And she always said, oh, you know, if not for poverty, I would have become a famous painter. We always went, oh, yeah, right. And when she retired and she started taking classes at a community college around with painting, she's really good. She is really good. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, if my mother can go back to painting, I certainly can go back to something that I was terrified of as a child, which was mathematics and numbers. And I always had a resistance to it. My, my, my maths teacher called me in class in front of everyone. He humiliated me. He said, you know, oh, Eileen, you know, you're a gone case. You have to drop maths, you know, and I did. Um, right away and the minute I was allowed to drop that but I think there are other ways to access numbers and so you know um, one of um, one of the ways that I'm trying to reclaim the logic of mathematics is by reclaiming it through the logic of poetry which is a, a, a form of a dream logic as well isn't it and and so I suppose what I'm saying is that Poetry isn't just limited to, you know, things like nature or war or love or grief. It can be extremely um, scientific and it can be extremely um, mathematical. And much of formal verse is extremely mathematical, as is a lot of music. You know, as, as we know, it's extremely um, uh, structured. So, um, but yes, I, I think that, Poetry in itself, and I, I, I often say to my, my um, classes in school that mathematics brings its own form of comfort because of certainty at that level anyway. So if you, if you were to say to me, what, um, what is the answer to 342 minus 26 times 458? The answer already exists. When we come up with the question, it just leads us to that answer. And in a way, poetry works that way for me. The act of questioning leads you on the path for an answer. But the beautiful thing about poetry is that there is no one answer. There are many answers, many possible answers, and it, there exists a universe where all of these answers are correct. And I think that's beautiful, but for some people, also very threatening because people want certainty in life. But maybe we need to understand that the only certainty in life is the lack of certainty. Mm. And I think poetry can offer that and offer some comfort in that. I think you've just touched on quantum theory there too, which is extraordinarily exciting and, and maybe not a space we want to go into. I mean, as you were, as you were talking again, I thought – you know, there really is no no other form of, of verbal art or written art that is more mathematical than poetry. Um, but also within that space, extraordinarily inventive and creative. And to work creatively within defined parameters is is absolutely amazing. Eileen, thank you so much for you sharing these these thoughts and ideas. But could I invite you to read a poem from the collection that we can share with the audience? 
Sure, I'd love to read um, this poem that opens with an epigraph from Judith Beveridge's poem, Walking in the Reserve. The poem is called Turning the Bend. We all ache for an off button, but turn the bend and everything quietens. I wake in the night to the roar of my thoughts. I think of what you might say. Sometimes I go to your poems and there it is, clear as day, proof that you too have turned these questions over in your mind, have offered up the answers. You move deliberately, your feet placed carefully so as not to trample a living creature. The truth is, I want to be still, like the artist who takes a photograph of a single bloomed rose year after year. There is merit in quietude and the precise layering of sound, image and object in the simple acts of walking, waiting and witnessing and the heart a mystery brimming with sweetness, with kindness, with love. Thank you so much, Eileen. That was from your collection, A Thousand Crimson Blooms, that it's been so exciting to share today. I've had such an amazing time, and I, I think I've, I've mentioned now a couple of times that there are, for as many poems as there are in A Thousand Crimson Blooms, there is a different interview that we could be having. So I, I thank you so much. I've just realised how long we've been talking to for taking so much time to chat to me today. It's been an absolutely wonderful... You have interview. to do some hard edits. <laughs> you have to do some very hard edits there. Well, I'm going to do. I'm going. I've got to give us an outro at least. I am speaking with Eileen Chong. We are discussing her new poetry collection, "A Thousand Crimson Blooms," and I am so extraordinarily grateful for the time that you have taken to discuss. Um, we've only scratched the surface of this collection, so I would thoroughly encourage people to go out and discover it. Thank you very much for having me. It was a real um, honour to be here. That's it for this great conversation with Eileen Chong. Eileen's latest collection of poetry is called A Thousand Crimson Blooms and it's out now from University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. Love to hear from you. I want to know what you're reading. I want to know what you think about the books that we're talking about. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's at Final Draft 2SER. When you subscribe in your podcast app, there is a new great conversation, sometimes too every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week. Can't wait to talk to you. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.